What's up, guys? This is Matt Flanagan. I'm a tight end in the NFL in my second year. I'm pursuing my MBA, concentrating in tech commercialization at the University of Pittsburgh, and this is my game plan. We've already heard from a few NFL greats on the game plan, and we're going to hear from plenty more. But today I'm excited to be in studio with a current NFL player who's already begun planning for some pretty unique goals after his playing days. Matt Flanagan, thank you so much for joining me on the game plan. It's awesome to be here. Thanks for having me, man. Awesome. Well, let's talk a little bit about your journey as a college player, then into the NFL. You're an NFL tight end. You're in your second year in the league. And I know you've had an interesting journey coming from a Jersey kid like me to then playing at Rutgers, Mm -hmm. Pitt, and then now at the professional level. Tell me a little bit about that journey. Yeah, I, uh, you know, when I originally started playing football, it was as every kid starts, it's, it's out for the love of the game. But once I started to progress through high school football and everything, I started to garner interest from college football programs and realizing that this is an avenue and opportunity for me to use football to get myself to the next platform and then see where I go from there. So I originally got to Rutgers. I was a walk-on player, which not everybody in the NFL started off their career as a walk-on in college. When, when football actually did start to take off a little bit and I actually started to get a little bit of playing time and everything, it was the point with which I earned a scholarship and things had turned out pretty much the way that I had hoped they would. And still at that point, I had never thought, OK, I'm doing all this to make it to the NFL. Honestly, when I was in school, I was just taking advantage of a lot of these programs set up for student athletes and everything. And again, like I, I think that's an extremely important lesson for everyone who is in a student athlete uh, or in a college football program, or even in just an athletics program in a college somewhere is that there is a lot of super helpful resources that you have access to and just take advantage of them. Now. I think that's lost sometimes when it gets to, I got to focus on why I'm here is to play football, you know? And it's, yeah. that's how do you go from, Hey, I don't, I don't know if I have a chance to play in the NFL uh-huh. to, Hey, wait, actually i I might. And, yeah. and, you know, there's a chance that I get drafted or I'm going to go undrafted, but I'm going to get signed mm-hmm. by, uh, by a team. Yeah. What's that yeah. conversation like? Uh, yeah. So it, it all started when I made that the, the transfer to uh, Pittsburgh, obviously with a lot of it was academically based, but a lot of it also was based that Rutgers had changed their offensive scheme to use only one tight end. And we had a bunch of good tight ends and not enough of us were seeing the field. So nope. I felt that, you know, it was a perfect timing for me to be able to go transfer somewhere else as a graduate student, do one year there and then see where it takes me. As I, you know, went to Pitt, obviously I I was was starting there doing really well. My coaches were telling me, hey, like NFL scouts are asking about you, man. Like this might be, you know, a real thing. I'm starting to obviously get the sweats and everything like, oh, wow. okay. like the process is to to give you a little look behind how the sausage is made is uh, when, you know, your last season of football is over. A lot of guys leave college and go train in Florida or something like that. They'll sign with an agent. I still was working through my MBA and I was still being paid for by University of Pittsburgh. So I was like, I'm going to stay in Pittsburgh and keep taking classes while I can. So I ended up training in Pittsburgh and wasn't invited to the combine, but I did my pro day there and had, had a few workouts with teams after that. And yeah, ended up signing with the Washington Redskins as a free agent. But once that door got opened, it was you realizing that, okay, now, it's constantly going to be an uphill battle, but it was something I was used to being coming from a walk on uh, background was that, Hey, you know, like you're not supposed to be here, you know, prove everyone else wrong. And I think most people, they think about, you know, everybody's on that Julio Jones signing a hundred million dollar contract right. thing. Right. Yeah. But that's more the exception than the rule. The Absolutely. rule is everybody that's behind Julio is just trying to make a roster. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, there's 22 guys in the NFL field and I guess maybe three or four of them are getting that mega max contract. You yeah. Know, but, 
think that's yeah definitely the the part that the media loves to push out and talk about is those contracts but the the bulk and the meat and potatoes of the nfl are yeah. these you know the blue, i guess like the blue collar nfl players you know no, i think it's a, it's a good way to think about it right i think when you know when i used to work at the nfl one of the big narratives that we would see is people say oh why do we care about the cba it's it's billionaires fighting with millionaires mm-hmm. and the argument that you really realize is actually it's it's not right yeah. there's there's a there's a handful of millionaires in the nfl sure yeah and then there's guys who maybe have played for eight or nine years and maybe collectively have, have built that, Yeah, but they're not making a million dollars every year. Oh yeah. And right? it's definitely, I, and I think one of the collective bargaining agreement is there's a constant fight over in, amongst players of where do we really die on the hill over? Are we fighting over a higher minimum contract or are we fighting over more benefits? Cause it's our side of the pie of the money. So there's, you know, 53% is distributed to the owners and 47% is distributed to the players. Right. Yep. So, but we still have to negotiate with the owners about how we're going to spend our 47%. Mm. So that is where it becomes, okay, are we going to invest more of that and allocate more of that into post-playing benefits and stuff yeah, like that? Yeah. Uh, you know, healthcare in, plans. Injury, exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I know there's this sort of historical narrative around, you know, older athletes, especially a couple of years after they retire, yeah. you know, having financial hardship and, right. and sort of outspending their savings. Yeah. Is this something that at rookie camp or just in the locker room, guys are talking about? They're more more aware of it now. Yeah, I mean, it, it's you know, everyone saw the thirty for thirty broke. You know, it's yeah. it's out there. Everyone's conscious of it. I would say that my personal, I, I, it's a little bit of a, a bad taste in my mouth as far as kind of the way that the broke athletes have been portrayed and everything. Okay, it's, how so? If you look at it, it's like winning a lottery. You know, like how many people who win the lottery end up going broke? You're giving people who've never had the access to the financial capital that they've ever had before a lot of money when they're eighteen, nineteen, twenty in their 20s in the youngest part of their life and they're automatically assuming that they're going to make that money for the rest of their life turns out the average nfl career is a little more than three years so right exactly that's not even one full contract exactly yeah Yeah. so i mean and especially the uh some of the older players like the way that this collective bargaining agreement has scaled the minimum wage in the nfl has increased every year maybe some of these guys who were the statistic of guys needing financial help um in the nfl is possibly skewed to a certain direction just because over 60 percent of people in the NFL are playing on minimum contracts, right? Yeah. Like it's, yeah. you know, I think the NFL PA has taken a good stance as well as providing financial education to rookies and, and vets and people who have finished their playing careers. And that sort of access didn't exist. And 15 years ago, even, uh, even five years ago, which is a result of a lot more conversations that are happening in the locker room and it's a player run union. So step one in the process is just acknowledging that there is this problem that it does exist. So so talk to me a little bit about maybe how the attitudes towards how guys think about finances and sort of what they're spending on and how they're saving, how those attitudes change, at least from what you're hearing. Yeah, I think there's been a lot of involvement from vets to encourage younger players to you know, max their 401k contributions and get that full employer benefit match because you know we have a one-to-one match. If you're not taking advantage of that, you're missing out on that part of money in your contract. I, I know when I was in my you know my rookie year with the uh, with the Washington Redskins, they had us sitting down and the vets were in the back and it's an opt-in program, but the vets were kind of standing over your shoulder like you better opt-in. You better you know, opt-in. <laughs> you're gonna need you're gonna need this money when you're yeah. 55 and want to retire, and you'll yeah. be glad that you set aside this money now as opposed to a couple extra thousand dollars that in your pocket today. Yeah. You know, I think another attitude that the conversation has changed is maybe a idea of, you know, what to do with investments. I think guys are 
shying away from trying to open their own restaurants and moving more into like fixed income assets like mm-hmm. you know, rental properties and commercial real estate. And I think that's turning this big pile of cash today into monthly income is that sort of mentality of, hey, I'm going to need income when, when, yeah. when playing stops. And that sort of investment strategy, I think, is relatively new. Um, again, I'm, I'm in the NFL for two years now, sure, so yeah. I, I'm not necessarily... Uh, the the best person to ask how stuff has changed, but I'd say the status of it right now is a lot of guys are looking into because especially with the the boom and you know commercial real estate and you know real estate in general after the financial crisis, I think yeah. a lot of guys tried to cash in, especially in the DC area um, with the metro line, everything that moves out there. I know a lot of players, a lot of opportunity. Just, yeah, they're just buying up houses and stuff that were part of this new metro line that's moving out there. So that's just an example of like guys thinking, okay, you thinking long term, exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, I think mean, it makes a lot of sense. I think. I like the part where the veterans are the ones that are are pushing you to think about this, right? right? And I right. think, like you said, you're, you're a couple of years in the league. You are going off of the wisdom of guys in the locker room that have been at this, uh, even for a couple of contracts, but are still realizing, you know, as you said, 60% of the league is playing on the minimum contract, right? right? Yeah. And, and so these guys are realizing how to stretch that. Yeah. And, and, you know, the league is getting younger and younger every year. There's more younger players. So honestly, it's the number of people that are playing on minimum contracts is still continuing to increase. Wow. So it's the side of the NFL that not a lot of people know or see, but a lot of people are, you know, the majority of people in the NFL are in a situation like me, you know, like mm-hmm. right now I'm a free agent, you know, you play one year someplace, preseason there, you get an injury, you are now a free agent, you go do some workouts, you'll get signed next year, you never know what's next. So it forces you to have that plan in the back of your head is like, okay, well, if the calls do stop. What am I going to do? Who are some of the veterans that you found you know, in your right. sort of couple of years in the league yeah. now have as, you know, the beacon of, hey, these guys are doing it the right way or yeah. even the ones that have come to you and given you some some valuable advice? Yeah, I was, uh, you know, in the same locker cluster as Vernon Davis. And that guy was super helpful as far as he said, a beacon to be try to follow, try to be like he's extremely give back to the community. He's involved you know, in other entrepreneurial investments, he does commercial real estate and everything. And okay. when the first conversation I had with him was about, okay, you know, what's your plan after football? You know, is that right? Yeah. So, and he himself kind of talked about his goals and you know what, because obviously he's one of the most established tight ends, Hall of Famer. Yeah. And uh, the first conversation that he has with me is the things he does outside of football, and I think that's spoken meant a lot to prove that there is those those athletes that are out there. Um, just staying in, the, I mean, obviously staying in the tight end room. Jordan uh, Jordan Reed was another yeah. super conscious guy about what his what he's doing with his finances. Where is he setting up? Yeah, he's involved in a bunch of different stuff with and, you know, see him. And so having him and Vernon in the room is to these, you know, elder statesmen to bounce ideas off of how to think about the wealth that you're making today. And, you know, how is that going to transfer you into the future? They're great friends and I've given me a lot of great advice too. anything in particular from advice or or feedback that they've given you around how you manage life outside of football that's really stuck out to you? The attitude of thinking with your wealth as far as assets and liabilities, don't be investing into things that are just going to continue to cost you money, you know, buying brand new cars, buying, you know, a house that's not going to you know, have any kind of income generation. Mm-hmm. So I like they've given me a bunch of reading material. It's about the podcasts. mentality. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I, and look, I think that's a valuable thing to start developing while you're still playing. Right. Right. That mentality, whether or not 
you're going to make multiple contracts or you're done sooner than you thought you were going to be. That mentality carries with you. Right. Yeah. And I think that's kind of been my whole vision on football has been continue to, you know, obviously make the most of the opportunity that I have now, but keeping an eye on the future and using what I'm doing now to set up my next move. And I think that's something that transcends football. And it's a lesson that will carry me through the rest of my life and the rest of my career. I think it's a lesson that is valuable for anybody who's not even in sports or or football, right? I mean, thinking long term, if you're just thinking a couple years ahead, then you're only planning for the next couple of years. And then let's say something happens, you know, unexpected in your life. You haven't thought about the 10 year plan means nothing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And but the problem is, if you think in a 10 year plan, you have to then be okay with delaying that gratification, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so I, I think whether you're an athlete, whether uh, you're somebody who's just starting out in their career, you're you're a college guy who's yeah. playing right now at Rutgers or Pitt like you did, yeah. thinking about what's the long game here, yeah. right? Definitely. Uh, I think is, is just a valuable skill set to take with you. Yeah, I think realizing, and that's been something that, has been something that I've tried to get a better grasp on is that, you know, how young I am and how early I am. Yeah. You're what, 24, 24. Yeah. Yeah, It's incredible. It's frustrating at times when you're like, man, you know, I want to be doing this. I want to be doing that. And it's take your time, man. You know, like it's, you're in this, it's a marathon, not a sprint. I think trying to realize that your investment horizons, your career trajectory is going to change throughout the course of 30, 40 years of working. So be okay with change, you know, like be adaptable. I think that's been a big lesson that I've, I've taken away from this, you know, NFL experience mm-hmm. um, is, you know, it's like the state I am right now, you know, I like can't plan five years in advance, you know, like yeah. I have to think team calls me tomorrow. I have to go move out to that part of the country or, or something like that. You know, yeah, that's a very unique experience, right? right. I, I, look, I think people switch jobs and they move places, yeah. but the speed at which it happens in the NFL yeah. Oh, yeah. as, as you're, you're doing workouts right now and you're thinking about these guys that are going to call you or midway through a season, there's an injury and now, now they're going to call you up and you get traded, right? They get called up. That's something that you can't plan for. Right. And so in that way, it almost becomes that much more important to think, think about the thing after, think about the thing long-term because this unpredictability you can't plan for anyway. Right. You know, I think a lot of people also don't understand the perspective of the student athlete. Right. Right. Especially the ones that are excelling both at an academic level and Mm -hmm. then in a D one football athletic level. So tell me a little bit about how, how you manage that. Every student athlete that's ever gone through it knows the struggle and that's, that's being able to balance your time management, workload, uh, practice, everything. I think one of the, I guess maybe, Untold stories about college football maybe is that case in point, when I showed up at the Rutgers campus, I was super into biology, super into science. I wanted to do this biotechnology major that Mm -hmm. was going to, I was super interested in medical devices. And when I was starting to look at some of the coursework and classes I was going to take, there are mandatory 8 a.m. lectures in my <laughs> junior year. You know, and you're supposed I, to be at the gym at the time. Exactly. I have, I have spring practice at that time. I yeah. can't can't do that. So, you know, you're sitting down with the academic advisor and the conversation shifts to, OK, well, what else are you interested? You know, like there's there's the level of sacrifice right there is, hey, you know, you should probably just be communications or criminal justice major just because that's what a lot of guys beforehand have done. We know the roadmap for that. We know what classes you're going to take. Honestly, that's what you see a lot throughout college football programs. Right. Yeah. And, and, and in the past, death. we've seen that even even those programs have ha- had a little bit of rubber stamping. Yeah. Uh, that's gotten some schools in trouble. Absolutely. So. Yeah. So, I mean, like it's, it's that sort of compromise of maybe you're giving up maybe what you're 
super interested in to study to be able to make it to all your practices and workouts on time. Uh, one of the things I'm super grateful for is I, I stood my ground pretty firmly that, you know, like when I went on my official visit, I remember I was like, oh, I want to be a biology major. They're like, no, you won't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it was, uh, I was, you know, very, even when it did get tough and I was, couldn't enroll in the biotechnology program, I was, you know, still wanted to do biology. Um, so I was still taking all those classes and ended up actually picking up a minor in entrepreneurship because oh, I just awesome. wanted to, yeah, I wanted to see the other side of the coin and wanted to see sciences kind of built up into that academic side and the research side. And a lot of people invest a lot of time in, in, in their academic uh, career to, progress, get your master's PhD and become an expert in this topic. But, um, I maybe saw a different side of the coin where I wanted to use my understanding of science and my background there and learn about how I was going to transition that into, you know, a profitable business. One of the coolest moments for me was, you know, walking through these undergraduate research symposiums. I was, a I was a part of this undergraduate research lab at the center of alcohol studies at Rutgers okay. where, you know, I was, running my own research project. And that was, you know, a great experience for me just to get to learn through the scientific method and see how research is done at that scale. Now, obviously it's not the level that, you know, I'm sure it's, it's a much smaller scale, but still the, to be able to walk around at the end of the semester and see, you know, these posters that sophomores and juniors in, in undergraduate research are being able to churn out with pretty incredible, somewhat market disrupting uh, results. Um, I, that was what made me think, OK, well, why isn't this the next big thing? You know, like, well, it's because it's an undergraduate research project. Yeah. And it's going to need yeah. to take revamping and rescaling to actually get it to that. And I, that was where it got me interested in doing the entrepreneurship side of uh, my minor. So and is that what helped you transition towards getting an MBA? Yeah. Or when did, you, when did that idea come about? Definitely. Yeah, I was um, my so my end of my Rutgers career, I was, you know, I you're, you're I registered in my first year. So you have four years of eligibility. So I could have been at Rutgers for five years. OK, so, you know, on track to graduate in four. So I was thinking, OK, what do I want to do with this last year? And at that point in time, you know, we were. Football wise, we had switched offensive schemes. So, you know, they weren't necessarily using me at my position as much. So and also I, you know, my, my dad had always told me, you know, graduate school and graduate work. He always encouraged me to go to a different school. He was okay. like, it, that's just get a, that, get that additional experience. Sure. And, 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 and to increase your network base, you know, like I was able to, you know, now I have a network base in Pittsburgh a network base in New Jersey, New York, obviously. So it's just mm -hmm. that experience alone. And to meet new people, to move to a new city, that, invaluable. And so what was the, what was the MBA program like it? Because you're only there for, for yeah. a year. Well, I'm still, yeah. So I'm still working on it. I have uh this is my last semester coming up uh, this spring. So, you know, knock on wood here. Yeah. yeah so it's been a lot of uh, it's, it's actually been super helpful with what my schedule has been like in the NFL. When I first got to Pitt in 2017, I started the MBA without really knowing how I was going to finish it. I yeah. only had one more year of football and I was yeah, going to be yeah. able to crush one more year of classes. So I just loaded up as many classes as I could into that year and said, okay, I'm going to find an employer to pay for it. Now that employer ended up actually being the NFL. So that's been super cool. But I started it thinking I, I have an, I have a general idea of what I'm interested in yeah. with tech commercialization yeah. and this MBA program itself has enough flexibility to allow me to take classes in the, this side of it. Whereas, you know, maybe some other programs may be very, okay, you need to either be in marketing finance, right? Or, they're much more rigid. Right, yeah. 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 Um, last off season I was taking classes, you know, pretty much fully online. I think those are a little bit harder because it's, you know, you're 
you're not in the room. You. It's hard to collaborate. Sure, yeah. 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 But, uh, no, it's been awesome. Yeah. I've, I've, and the classes I've been, because the flexibility, the classes I've been able to take, I've really been able to curtail towards my own personal interests. Yeah. 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 And I know those personal interests, you, you've hinted at a little bit here, uh, are aligning both your interest in biosciences and biotechnology. Yeah on, you know, maybe looking at medical devices right. and then combining it with your sort of MBA and, and business acumen that you've built and yeah. are building, you know, as you finish your courses yeah, yeah. to combine that and look at the business opportunity for these. So talk to me a little bit about where that interest formed and, yeah. then, and then what you'd like to do with it, you know, post your, your playing career. Definitely. Yeah. I'm, I was, you know, the biotechnology program I was, I was talking about was definitely, you know, my first explore into medical devices itself. I knew that that was a growing industry as far as like what was going to happen with wearable technologies and everything. So I, I wanted to be able to understand some of the framework behind, you know, how these things come to be. So I think that was my original interest in medical devices and everything. I see the the landscape changing as it's maybe moving towards a lot more of personalized and preventative medicine with the wearable um, devices and biometrics and being able to use that to decrease the amount of time spent in hospitals, decrease the amount of healthcare costs that, you know, because people are actually noting, oh yeah, you know, my blood pressure has been, you know, steadily climbing for the past two years. Maybe I should make some lifestyle changes. So it, it was, um, it was in that area of seeing an opportunity in science and seeing, uh, the intersection between the two things I was really interested in. Right. Um, and did you find like, as an athlete, you're probably tracking your yeah. lifestyle much oh, yeah. more closely. Right. You were able to then say, Hey, if this was available to the rest of the population, yeah they could be seeing some of the benefits that I'm seeing from my training. Definitely. Yeah. Like it, being able to make sustainable changes, I think is the big goal there. And, and doing that is not, you know, a complete overhaul in your diet and a complete, okay, now I'm going to start working out. It's finding, making those small percentages changes throughout your daily habits that will make you in turn a healthier person. So yeah. I like that was something exciting for me. One of the things I guess I was didn't fully understand until I started to learn more about it was the time horizon of these advancements. Okay. Like, How so? Because if you look at like pharmaceuticals and, you know, therapeutics and stuff like that, the FDA regulation process is going to be 15 years or, you know, at least or something yeah, like that, sure. you know, going through. And the statistic alone of, you know, anything or technologies that start phase one trials to actual approval is around like 10% approval rate. And right. depending on uh, industry and what drug it's actually being used for and uh, what recommendations they're getting it for it. But I think that was something that I, I didn't understand until I really started to learn more about the FDA approval process um, and has been something that it's moved me more towards devices itself um, okay. because I think those, uh, as opposed to therapeutics, are going to be the direction that healthcare companies and care providers, right, overall. Care providers overall have, you know, are, are leaning towards. And, and, you know, it's it's a lot more cost effective to do it that way. Mm. Right. And it's a little more accessible, right? Sure, I, think, yeah. I think people can, can go find it off the shelf. They can start tracking. I know, you know, Apple has started putting uh, EKG monitors and things like that yeah. in there. As you start to see, you know, not just pharma companies or, or healthcare providers, yeah. but even consumer technology companies start to edge in this way. Right. There's a lot more opportunity for you as somebody who is looking at these technologies and saying, yeah. hey, let's take something from idea and concept phase mm -hmm. to market. Yeah, there's a lot more opportunity for you there. Yeah, like a quick example, Femi Avendejo is, uh, and I'm going to butcher his last name, but everyone should look him up. He's got a CEO of uh, this new company called Health Real, and it's just that right there. The 
BMI obviously is a very uh, skewed, skewed metric use yeah. for people of my size because it'll say I'm overweight no matter how much I weigh. Just right. based you're 6'6". Six, six, exactly. Yeah. Um, so he actually is working on something right now with telling you body fat percentage, your ideal weight and you know ideal caloric intake to get to that body fat percentage just off of using uh, your phone camera. So it's really, yeah, you don't need a caliper or any nope. of that measurement stuff. Yeah. It's, oh, wow. it's, it's a, uh, it's a NASA technology that he's, uh, licensed and put into his, you know, and his own proprietary algorithms to, you know, do the readings and everything. But it's, I, I know he's gotten a lot of interest from companies like Apple who are looking to add another facet of personalized health and, and self-tracking of your body fat. Like that's yeah. a, you know, that's a real thing that people should be conscious of and just being able to, it's, you know, you set up your phone and you you know, walk around or spin around in a circle with it. So, and it'll tell you everything you need. So it's, it's really impressive. It's incredible. It's yeah. impressive technology. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's, he's been another guy. He's a, you know, ex NFL vet. And I met him uh, at a actually uh, commercialization workshop at NASA. Um, and he was, uh, you know, super helpful giving me uh, some advice you know, as far as like what your mindset should be about, you know, entrepreneurship. And I was, you know, I've always had the conversation, you know, phrased as, Oh, you know, like, okay, what's happening after football? You know, I'm always preparing for after football. It's like, no, no, man, like you play football. Now you do other things now too. Like it's, everything is right now. Everything that you're doing right now is preparing for the next thing. You know, it's, it's, there's, there isn't like a stop date and then your life starts then it's, yeah. you're all one, it's all one continuous timeline. So I think, you know, he, he's been great to help me out with, you know, having that, that mindset of preparing for the future, but also thinking of it as your present. That's like the kind of stuff that, I think it's really empowering for for players now as they're thinking about it. You know, if they're making that choice, right? Yeah. It's an, it's a false choice to say either I can go play professionally mm. or I can go pursue these things I'm interested right. about. You're an example. He's an example. Obviously, yeah. Vernon Davis and these guys that you talked about are all examples of players who are saying, no, I'm more than football. Yeah. Right. I can do all these right. things outside of that as yeah. well. And then, yeah, God willing, I have a long career and then I can go do the things I need to do after yeah. that as well. So. And I think it's like, you know, if you look at the way that, football culture itself is if you're doing anything that's not helping your team win, you're being a bad teammate, you're being selfish. So I think that breaking that stereotype is something that I think a lot of players right now, and, and obviously podcasts like this are starting to establish is that just football players, they're, they're people too. And they have obviously their own goals and ambitions. And, you know, we should be as, you know, as fans and as, you know, it's just other, other people on this earth, you yeah. know, we should be empowering that and encouraging that as opposed to saying, Oh, you know, maybe we should be spending more time in the playbook. I really appreciate you saying that. And yeah. I think that's a lot of the, the emotion and impetus behind what we're trying to do here is that these are just stories that Tim and I have been really interested in yeah. through our career, right. uh, you know, as we've uh, had the opportunity and been very fortunate enough to get to know both current and retired players. Yeah. And we're betting that other people find these stories interesting too. Yeah. I hope so. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 and, I, and I think they will. I think they will, because I think as social media, at least my, my viewpoint is yeah. as social media has made players more than just a Jersey, right. Yeah. And more than just somebody faceless in a helmet and you get to connect with, with your favorite players on a human mm -hmm. level, you know, uh, Juju Smith Schuster is playing Fortnite and you can go hop on Twitch and watch him play yeah, or even the, play with him yeah, or yeah. even <laughs> play with him. Right. And you connect with them on a personal level yeah. and then you care about what he wants to do after. Absolutely. Right. And yeah. so I think you're right. This generational shift is happening in football or, or in sports, you know, overall where we're starting to see these players as, as, as friends, as somebody mm -hmm. who we want to encourage and we want to see them. Yeah 
do really well. So I know that you actually had a really interesting opportunity uh, as part of this NFLPA externship program, and you got to spend uh, your off-season working with WeWork Labs. Yeah, right? yeah. I so tell me spent, a little bit about that. Yeah, I actually spent, it was a three-week program living here in uh, New York City down in Greenwich Village. But uh, yeah, it was externship program provided by the NFLPA with WeWork. So I was working originally with uh, WeWork Labs, which is their subdivision that works with startups. It was a lot about the process behind, you know, what steps do we take with some of these startups? What are they, what are they, what kind of help do they need going forward? And okay. I think I saw that and wanted, especially with some of my interests in post football career and everything to get that access to, you know, some of the networking opportunities with who they're introducing uh, these startups to, as far as, you know, marketing specialists, business plan coordinators, and eventually access to funding. Yeah. It was a great opportunity that it was very hard for me to turn down. So was, was it a batch of like an accelerator or it was, these are just companies that work within, they just work at WeWork. So the WeWork model itself sells desks and individual right. business units right. to people, but their startup model was, we're going to sell you by the chair, by the desk to oh, small businesses. So a lot of it is one or two founders from companies coming in and running out the space and using it. And that's their office space. And I didn't it. a extremely advantaged uh, price point. For them, and it gave them also access at a no additional cost to the normal WeWork price, access to the programming side of the WeWork Labs content, which is where I was uh, stationed in. So a lot of it was just based on the weekly catch-ups with the founders and everything, uh, identifying who they needed to talk to next, what's the next actionable items that they can work on. And I think sitting down with some of the labs managers who were you know super awesome and well-connected, they're... Uh, our friend Dimitri. Yeah, of course, uh, yeah. he put us in touch. Yeah, right. Yeah, so the, the, just being able to sit in on those meetings alone and just kind of listen to the conversations that they have with someone who has an idea and talk with someone who's been through the process and then connecting the dots between the two was extremely valuable, and I was you know really excited to be a part of that. Yeah, sometimes just being a fly on the wall in some of these conversations, you know, you tend to realize when we look at it from the outside or when yeah. we're reading TechCrunch or Forbes and, and we think everybody's really got it together. Mm -hmm. And then you're in the room with this company and you're like, oh, my God, like you are you are you're flying by the seat of your pants. You're yeah. figuring this out as you go. Runway is getting a lot shorter. It's getting yeah. a lot shorter. Yeah. Right. And yet I think there's this perception of confidence that that these startups present publicly. Right. And so I think it's a it's a really cool opportunity to be a fly on the wall. And I get to yeah. see this, when, you know, when I became an investor. Being in these rooms and being in these these meetings, you're just absorbing and, and you're I, I think it gives you a lot of empathy for these companies mm -hmm. uh, yeah. because you realize like really how hard they're working and how they're, how they're making it look like they have their shit together. And yet it, may, it might not, not be it's all the pieces and oranges. Yeah, it's not, it's yeah. not that easy. Right. There's this concept of founder envy mm -hmm. that, that sometimes investors have where, you know, you see the founders, you're like, oh, my God, I think I want to start my own company one yeah. day. And then when you're actually in the room and you see all the things that are going wrong, you're like, yeah, do I really? Is this is this really a path? It's definitely frightening. Yeah. <laughs> no. But uh, it, I think I learned a lot about, you know, not biting off more than you can chew. Cause I think that's mm -hmm. one of the biggest commonalities between a lot of very ambitious people who end up being the founders and of these startups. So talking about college athletes, yeah. what is some advice that you would have for them? Um, the ones that are playing now mm -hmm. and have an eye towards playing professionally right. and the ones that are playing now and maybe are realizing, Hey, this is, this is not something I'm going to do long-term yeah. as, as a, as a college athlete that's played in two different teams, what's some advice that you'd have for them? I would say constantly leverage your position as an active college football player, you know, cause like 
as a football player in general, like it's going to be over and people care more about active players than they do about former players. So use that to your advantage, you know, send out LinkedIn messages, send just shoot for the moon. You know, like I remember when I was at Rutgers, some of the time uh, at Pitt, I would just be, you know, connecting with guys on LinkedIn just because I they were in a field that I was interested in and just shot them, shot them my little pitch. It's like, hey, man, I'm, you know, a student athlete at Rutgers. I, you know, I'm really interested in biotech and investing in this space. So, like, if you were in my shoes, what do you think I should be getting involved in? What do you think I should be looking at? Or even just, do you have any advice for me? You know, I think that's like something that, have Any, folks responded when you've done that? Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, it's, it's a, you know, you get your success rate isn't hundred percent, but yeah, no, I've definitely gotten in contact with some like VCs. Um, cause actually like at Pitt, like when we would have guest speakers come in, I always, always ask them for their, um, uh, business card and just shoot them an email afterward and just be like, Hey, I'm interested in this space. Do you know anybody? And yeah. like, just that conversation alone, they could not, they can read it and say, Oh, screw this guy and not respond. <laughs> okay, cool. You know, what, what did that do to me? I, if I didn't send in the first place, he wouldn't responded either. I think that's, I think that would be a really good skill for a college athlete today to start to practice and develop is yeah. like just making cold calls, you know, like it's, you're an interesting person right now, you know, use that to your advantage. So it's, it's, uh, it's, that's definitely where I would try to steer a young college athlete. Are there skill sets that you feel like you've developed as an athlete, both playing in college and now at the professional level that have helped you outside of sports, whether it's habits, whether it's things that, that you just do for yourself mm -hmm. that you find uh, taking taking from athletics to then going into the professional world? Yeah. What's, what's been something that, that yeah. you found useful? I think acknowledging that, you know, the first time you do something, it's going to suck. So like, I think that was a big lesson from athletics that I've taken into like my personal life and my, you know, my career and everything is that don't be discouraged when the first thing you try doesn't go the way you want it to, you know, on a practice field, they always say in NFL or in football in general, it takes 10,000 reps at something to be, to be good at it. Yeah. And you need to take that with heart with everything, whether it's studying for an exam or, or networking or something like that, you know, it's, it's, it's just a matter of doing and repetitions and being able to cope with failure and, and just brush it off and then keep going. Like, like I said, you know, everybody sucks at what they're doing the first time they try it, you know, so it's valuable feedback to take back no matter where you are in your life, right? right. Adversity is going to come your way, yeah. whether you're playing in the NFL and you're not sure what team you're going to be playing on next season, yeah. or you're somebody who is leaving a steady career to go start a startup. Right. You've never done this before. This is your first time doing this. Sure. You're, yeah. you're going to be bad at it. Yeah. You're not going to have all the answers yourself. You're going to have to go and hire somebody yeah. who's going to be able to like make up for your deficiencies. Oh yeah. So you just got to figure out how you get better and how you surround yourself with the people that are going to help you. What's the thing that you turn to when you're facing adversity like that? What motivates you or empowers you to keep going forward? Yeah, honestly, like I've, the storm will pass, you know, I, I think every, I think a lot of the times you can get caught up in any kind of self doubt or any kind of, once things do start to turn poorly, there's, you know, you want to stop what you're doing. You want to just kind of, you know, realize that the sky is falling. But I think something that athletics and just my own kind of just view on everything has just been, it'll be fine. The sun's going to come up tomorrow. Just keep churning away. If what you're doing is really meaningful and purposeful, then someone will see that as well eventually. That still isn't, you know, that leaves room for self-reflection as well, though. That's there's still room for you to look at what you're doing and look at the process and get feedback and you know, improve in that way. But 
you know, true core values of you're tested through time and being able to kind of lean back into all the hard work and stuff that you put in to get to where you are and realize that, okay, it's not going to be all sunshine and rainbows. I'm going to stumble. I'm going to fall. But to be able to keep picking yourself back up is the real, you know, is, is the real skill that you have to keep honing and keep practicing. And it, honestly, it, it's a still, still a struggle that I work with today. And it's you know, constantly something you keep in the back of your mind. That's a great place to leave it, man. Okay. That's awesome. That was, that was great. <laughs> yeah. Hey, everyone. This is Jay Kapoor. We hope you enjoyed this episode with Matt Flanagan. As I was flying solo on this one, we'll skip the partner meeting this week and simply wish Matt the best of luck and the rest of his MBA program. I know he's going to crush it. I'd also like to thank my friend Dimitri Kuvaros for an introduction to Matt, and a special thanks to Betaworks for hosting us in their podcast lab. Hey, we'd really love to hear from you. Find us on Twitter at The Game Plan Show or Instagram at Game Plan Show for bonus content. You can also leave us a five-star review on iTunes. As always, thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next week on The Game Plan. <laughs>